Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Schack, and I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church in Elizabethton, Tennessee. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS and Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC in Emory, Virginia. I'm excited about this series of programs coming up, Faith Futures, or the Future of Faith. And we're going to be looking at uh, how faith is changing in this century. And I have great thinkers such as Phyllis Tickle, Marcus Borg, Robin Myers, Carol Howard Merritt, Diana Butler Bass, Brian McLaren, and, uh, and many more to talk about their views on how faith is changing and how it's shaping America as well. My first guest is David Kinneman. He's on the phone with me from his home office in Ventura, California. He is the author of You Lost Me? Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church, and Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity and Why It Matters. David Kinneman is the president and majority owner of Barna Group, a private nonpartisan research and resource company located in Ventura, California. Since joining Barna in 1995, David has overseen studies that have polled more than 350,000 individuals. He's designed and analyzed nearly 500 projects for a variety of clients. He is in demand as a speaker about spiritual trends, teenagers, and 20-somethings, vocation and calling, and he is on the telephone with me. Welcome, David, to Religion for Life. Thanks for having me, John. My pleasure. Uh, tell us first about Barna Group. It's a research and consulting firm for Christian churches. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's a fair way of putting it. Really, we're um, focusing on, as you say, intersection of faith and culture. Uh, we look at uh, various issues of, of public opinion, uh, everything from you know how do different faith constituencies plan to vote this coming November uh, to various questions about faith and spirituality and media and technology, issues of parenting and family life, a lot of things around faith formation. Uh, and you know the, the typical groups that we work with are individuals that are nonprofits or churches or various faith leaders. Really, what we're trying to do is help people understand cultural change so that they can make better sense and be better leaders as a result. Now, you work, as I understand it, for the most part with evangelical churches. You, you describe yourself as evangelical. Is that right? What, what does it mean to be evangelical, and what are your commitments? Yeah, well, I think that's true. We do um, most of our work with evangelicals, although we work with a fairly broad spectrum of people from you know, various faith traditions, uh, certainly Catholic and, and uh, you know, broad spectrum of, of, of Protestants. Uh, we also work with a lot of non-faith-oriented organizations and businesses we've worked with, Sony and NBC Universal, and, and many other nonprofits that are sort of, um, you know, are religious uh, as we try to help them understand faith and, and the dimensions of faith in, in American culture today. The, um, the focus on evangelical Christians, it's a you know, particular segment of Americans. Uh, we estimate it's anywhere between 8% using a fairly tight definition of evangelicals to as many as about one in every four Americans who would self-identify as evangelical. And, you know, the, the definitions sort of vary depending on how you, how you talk about it. But, but generally, evangelicals are defined as individuals who have a strong belief in the authority of, of the Bible as some sort of, you know, revelation from, from God that uh, defines how human beings ought to live. Uh, there's a real strong belief in, in Jesus and his uh, work on the cross and the fact that uh, all of that belief should translate into being 
um, you know, effective, really, marketers of their faith. They, they believe in faith-sharing conversations. That's one of the things that usually defines an evangelical. They're pretty outspoken about their faith um, in certain ways that, you know, I think sometimes go unnoticed. But that's typically been the group that we've worked with, is trying to understand that particular segment of Americans who have a very strong faith commitment and who believe uh, very strongly in, in Scripture and Jesus. Well, that, that's very helpful. Thank you. Um, your focus with these two books, uh, You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church, and Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity and Why It Matters, is that generation of young people between 18 and 29. And this generation, or at least some of them, are leaving the church, and your book is about why that's the case. And you call this generation the Mosaics. Uh, tell me about the Mosaics. Well, why that name and who are they? Well, there's all sorts of questions about generations and generational theory today, as you know, know. And, you know, there's everything from the boomers, who are the most famous generation in American history, born between 1946 and 1964, sort of the post-war baby boom, then called the boomers. And, and so each generation uh, has kind of its own distinct profile. You can talk about Gen X, and then the generation after that's often called Gen Y, or millennials. And we use the phrase mosaics instead of Gen Y or, or millennials, or in addition to those those phrases, because we think they're they're more than just uh, you know after the Xers, and they're more than just the sum total. The fact that they were born around the time of the turn of the millennium, that um, we think that the mosaics are the most eclectic. Uh, not just we think we know this from a lot of the research that they're the most eclectic generation uh, that American culture has seen, both in terms of ethnicity. In terms of their, um, you, you know, their their religious perspectives and profiles, they're they're a very diverse generation in many many ways, and so we think this term mosaic is a better descriptor of the generation today, and I think that bears on you know the kind of faith journeys that they end up taking. They they often take a more circuitous route uh, to their faith um, than was true of previous generations. And what makes this generation? in part unique, as I understand you, is technology, particularly the Internet. Uh, because of access to the Internet, they become somewhat alienated from institutions such as the church and suspicious of its authority. Is that right? Yeah, well, I think that's um, broadly true. I mean, uh, you know, that's in that simplest form. You know, there are a lot of things we could quibble with. But, but generally, I say that, uh, you know, the, the Internet and, and technology, digital technology, is changing the way we think about access to information and to authority systems. So when you have a health problem, you don't just have to go to the doctor to find out what's wrong with you. You, you can click online and figure out answers to you know, some of life's most vexing problems and challenges. And so the Internet is changing. It's true not just of the next generation. It's true of, of you know, any adult uh, and any human being who's interfacing with these digital technologies. But it's, it's particularly true of this next generation that their use of digital technology is changing the way they think about about authority, about the systems that would have given them, you know, some sort of meaning in life. And what we think about this generation is that they're blenders. They're they're not just, you know, they're not just digital, but they're not just analog. And that means that um, you know the, the wisdom of scripture, the wisdom of the church, the wisdom of the community of of, of believers um, is being augmented by their digital, uh, their digital activities and friendships and relationships and information they can get digitally. And so it's a bit of an augmented reality that's, I think, changing the nature of, of associations with institutions. And listen, this is not just true of, of 
you know, sort of faith and, and church and religion, um, it's, I think, it's just a microcosm of the larger trend that's affecting all institutions. You think about the music industry sure. over the last 15 years, and access to music through technology has given a different kind of sensibility. It's, it said, listen, it's the, the music industry doesn't matter. What really matters is our digital experience of music, and we're going to rewrite the rules around around that sensibility. You wrote uh, that well, that th these young people, these mosaics, uh, speak of the Internet in, in a sense. It's, it's a first language, whereas perhaps uh, your generation or mine, uh, it, it, we have to, we had to learn it secondhand. But for them, it's, it's natural, and that really changes the way they, they process uh, everything. Yeah, it is, and it changes, you know, how they fact-check sermons when they're sitting in a, you know, a church listening to someone speak, or they're maybe not even, you know, engaged in the sermon, but they're, you know, kind of kind of grazing on the, the, the talk that's being given by that faith leader at the same time. They're also checking Facebook and, you know, checking out their phones and, you know, surfing uh, different sites and, you know, checking out Instagram, and so it, it, it creates a much more distractive generation, a generation that's, you know, it's harder to... Uh, sort of get their attention, and they, they they don't think in the same long bursts that maybe we we had the luxury of doing, you know, prior to the distractive technologies. Uh, but they're they're incredibly powerful, and there's a reason why they work so well is because they are, um, you know, they're immersive. They create an alternate or augmented reality that benefits us as humans in a, in a, you know some very tangible ways. But it also has these drawbacks of creating, you know. You know uh, Sort of as we say, it augmented or a different type of reality that that each individual sitting in that pew or even each individual in a family could be experiencing a different kind of reality at any given moment based on those digital technologies that they're using. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is David Kinneman, author of You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church, and Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity and Why It Matters. David Kinneman is the president and majority owner of Barna Group. You wrote, uh, David, that many young Christians, just like millions of young non-Christians, have a negative perception of the church, particularly of evangelicalism in America. I was shocked to find so many young believers who harbor negative views of the church. And, and uh, that's what you wrote, and I'm curious um, that you say you were shocked. Uh, your, your father uh, is a pastor, or, or, uh, I believe, and, and you grew up in church. What was your experience in church, if you don't mind my asking, your, in your teens and 20s? Yeah, no, I, I don't mind at all. And, you know, I think part of what's interesting about research is uh, I think there's some truth in the fact that, you know, r research helps um, us interpret our own our own stories and backgrounds. And I had a you know, very uh, a very positive experience growing up. Um, you, you know, as the son of a pastor, um, and and you know, generally didn't experience any sort of walking away from faith. Um, but I knew many, many, many who did, and um, you know, was was working to try to help understand a bit of you know the stories of those that I knew well, and was trying to understand a little bit more about what that looked like in their lives, and try to get some sense of the trends because from you know, the work that we've done, and we work with a lot of faith leaders, um, you know, trying to help them interpret what's happening. And we had heard sort of anecdotally for many years that, you know, this idea of the dropout problem was a huge challenge for churches, and we wanted to get some sense of the size and the scope. And, you know, we estimate that it's something like three out of five, are, uh, you know, young people who attend church as a teenager will drop out at uh, some point. Say in that 20s. again, three, three out of five. Six, three out of five. Sixty percent. So 
talked about, 59% will drop out. And in a way, I think that's really significant because it means that you know, a significant number of these individuals are, are you know, losing some sort of faith in, in church. But that was what we learned was that most of those people that do drop out, they don't drop out forever, um, they're, and they're not even really necessarily becoming ex-Christians. Only about one in ten lose their faith. Uh, about the, the vast majority of these young people are what we call spiritual nomads, where they, they wander away from the institutional church, but they still call themselves Christians. And so trying to get some sense of the scope of the problem was, again, part of the the, the goal for us. And uh, you know, I think we, we, we did make some progress in, in doing that, unpacking the different kinds of you-lost-me stories, because they're, they're not all the same. Yeah, you mentioned uh, nomads are one group that are that are kind of wandering, experimenting with different things, still identify as Christian. Uh, and then there is uh, two other groups, exiles and, and prodigals. Can you talk about those a little bit too? Sure. Yeah, a nomad is someone who, um, as you say, we these are people that wander away from the church. So they still say the church, institutional church is important, but they're and they're still they're they're still Christian, but they say the institutional church is unimportant. Excuse me. And then prodigals are individuals who say their faith is no longer. Uh, important in their, in their lives. They call themselves an ex-Christian or no longer Christian, so they w- literally walk away from their parents' faith. And then a, a, a an exile is, is sort of this third group who they feel, they're very committed to their faith. They still call themselves Christians, uh, but they somehow feel stuck or lost between culture and the church. So we use the phrase exiles as, as the Old Testament um, you know, the Hebrew literature talks about this, the story of Daniel, uh, who was sort of, you know, in Babylonian captivity, and he was sort of stuck between two traditions, between, you know, the reality of, of life in Babylon and, and the reality of his, his uh, Hebrew faith. And so he was in exile, sort of stuck between two cultures. And so that's a third group, and we estimate that about three in ten uh, young people fit in that group. So about four in ten are, 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 um, are nomads. About three in ten, or two in ten, are uh, uh, exiles. About one in ten are are uh, the prodigals. What's interesting about each of those phrases? We try to use these three phrases: prodigals, nomads, and exiles, uh, because they each define a certain kind of getting lost. And what's interesting about all three of those, if you think about those classic archetypes: uh, a prodigal who rejects the faith of their parents, a nomad who just sort of wanders from institutional faith, and an exile who feels sort of stuck between two different worlds. Um, I think what's interesting on each of those three is that they're all without a home. Um, you know, they're all sort of stuck in no man's land in some way. They're they're, they're sort of you know on a journey somewhere. You know, they, they haven't reached their destination. And you know, I think one of the things we really learned in this research was that you know, at least from a Christian tradition, I think that this is also true of those from a non-Christian tradition. I think these classic archetypes fit you know any kind of faith story. Um, but what's interesting for us as those that typically work with, you know, Christian churches and Christian community is that what we really learned was that each of these individuals who feel as though they're prodigals, nomads, or exiles, they, they really, this isn't just, um, uh, you know, like they're just angry at their parents or just trying to get back at them. Uh, what we really discovered was that in many ways these, these identities, they, they, they become a, a critical part of the story of these individuals. They, they become literally their identity. They become something of, of who they would define themselves to a friend. And, you know, sometimes we've noticed in, in our work with, with parents or with others who you know, never experienced that kind of walking away, a real 
kind of blind eye, uh, kind of a, a, a casualness, a cynicism about those that, that feel disenfranchised with, with their faith experience, as though this is just sort of a switch that someone turned on. And quite the contrary, these identities of being, you know, prodigal nomad or exile uh, become really who they define themselves as. It becomes part of, you know, their, their, own, their own spiritual identity in a very profound way. David Kinneman, author of You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving the Church, is my guest on Religion for Life. So what is the complaint with younger generations in the church? From their perspective, why has the church lost them? Well, you know, we went into this book and the research behind it assuming that there would be a, a smoking gun, a real, you know, glaring problem that the church could correct. Um, you know, frankly, in the previous book that we had done, looking at the perceptions of evangelicals uh, and modern-day Christianity among young non-Christians, we did find a smoking gun, and that was this perception of being anti-homosexual. Uh, that was the big perception, mm-hmm. 91% of young non-Christians say that the, the church is anti-homosexual. It's, it's against the, the lifestyle and, and you know, attitudes and perspectives of those who are, who are gay and lesbian. And um, what we discovered in the You Lost Me research is that there isn't really a smoking gun, that each of the reasons that people leave are very personal, um, very distinct. Um, there are some broad patterns, so we could say the church was often perceived as overprotective. It, it had kind of kept people sheltered from the world. Um, they believe the church is anti-science, that it's sort of out of step with the scientific world that we live in. Uh, they feel as though the church is exclusive, that they have to choose between their faith and their friends. Uh, clearly, sexuality is a huge uh, point of disconnection in terms of you know, what the church teaches on various subjects uh, to um, you know, a whole host of, 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 of issues that come up in, in terms of sexuality. Um, a lot of times there's a, there's a sense in which the church isn't a safe place uh, to ask about doubts, uh, to, to express the most you know, pressing life questions that they, they harbor. And so out of, out of those different perceptions, you know, each kind of relates to a particular kind of group. So, I mean, uh, an exi- exile is very likely to feel as though the church is overprotective. You know, they feel called maybe into performing music or being um, in a particular, you know, kind of career, um, anti-science, also a perception of many exiles. You know, they feel as though they'd like to be involved in, in a scientific career, and, and the church sort of gives them, uh, you know, a, a cold shoulder uh, for, ch- for choosing that kind of path. Um, people who are, are prodigals often feel as though the church is a, is a place of, of, of lacking doubt, that you can't express your doubt. Um, and, you know, people that are nomads are these that feel they have to choose between their faith and their friends, or they may feel the church is repressive because they've become sexually active. Um, so there's an interesting sort of interplay, but those are some of the broad themes that we discovered. But all that's really underscored by this sense that we you know, come to the conclusion every story matters, uh, because each person who has their own faith journey really really does express those uh, those patterns in pr- very particular ways, very unique things that have happened to them, conversations, experiences, books they had read, all those things had contributed to a particular perception of, of the church. So what do you think, I mean, this is more of an evaluative uh, question that I'm asking you. Uh, it's quite a list. Uh, and we can, but do you think these young people have a case? Um, are they right? Uh, what, what can we learn from them? Well, that's a great question. You know, I think of ourselves as, uh, as researchers, really as perception scientists, because we're studying really people's perceptions and perceptions of themselves and perceptions of their own work and their own, their own lives, their own histories. 
and you know a lot of good perception science. I mean, any person who does this kind of work would would or should admit to you that you know that there's a, a large degree of um, you know error. There, there's a large degree of the fact that people don't always they're not always fully in touch with their own you know their own histories, and and so there's a lot of misperceptions in the study of perceptions, um, and and so we're we're pretty quick to admit that in in both the you know the book as well as as we talk about this year, um, but I think the other side to it is that um, you know one of the ways that we ought to think about that is that we have our perceptions you know even in the way you would ask that question there's a perception you have around you know whether people can really be accurate in what they perceive about themselves mm-hmm. and and so we have perceptions of people's perceptions we 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 think something about what other people say about themselves and one of the ways i say it is at the very least we should take people at their word in the sense that maybe a portion maybe some aspect of what they have reported in relates to something that's true about their experience uh, you know what if what if half of what they experience is is true enough um, then we have to deal with that portion of the perceptions that that exist that are that are real reflections of some of the experiences that they've had and uh, you know and I think that's frankly the role of sacred scripture again whatever our faith tradition um, in the Christian tradition I think that's a strong uh, a strong way of understanding scripture is that it helps us right size our own perceptions about ourselves about our own significance uh, the Hebrew scriptures, um, you, know, you know, Ecclesiastes and and, and uh, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, um, gives us a clear sense of, of how to how to have the right perception about the world and about ourselves and about what God may be doing um, around us. And I think that's one of the reasons why you know this generation we we ought to have a lot of concern about them too, because in a world where you know their digital technologies seem to make them larger than life. They, they can extend the powers of their relational capacity and, you know, their their ability to communicate with anybody at any time on anything. Um, it, 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 it gives a sense of um, being larger than life. And I think we have to really work hard, again, whatever our faith traditions, but particularly for those of us who are, uh, you know, coming from a Christian tradition, as the, the scriptures teach us so strongly, we have to have the best and right perception about our our. our Ourselves, and I think that's why it's so important um, for us to be, you know, focusing on Scripture as a as a tool for right-sizing our perceptions about the world and about ourselves. I'm thinking of uh, of um, Bishop John Shelby Spong, who is also on my program. He wrote a book, "Why Christianity Must Change or Die," a decade or so and a half ago. And from his perspective, he says both the theology and practice of the church needs to change. But as I read you, David Kinnaman, you think perhaps the theological aspects and foundations are okay, uh, but it needs to be presented in a different way. Is that is that close? Is that too simplistic? Well, I think it's close. I, I think that you know the last chapter of our book is what's old is new. So we talk a lot about the importance of, of tradition and the importance of theology and you know one of the things we could point to is this counter trend we don't write about it a lot in the book but we we allude to it at various places in the book of this sort of counter trend that some of the churches that are doing um, the best in terms of of connecting and and retaining young people if you just want to look at it from a pure retention point of view you know what are the churches that seem to be retaining young people best they they tend to be emphasizing a fairly 
traditional, fairly straightforward, um, you know, classic understanding of theology, but their practices are changing, as you say. Uh, but I don't think that's sufficient. I think that's a, you know, in some ways a simplistic way of saying it, because uh-huh. there still is a, 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 a sensibility around these dynamic young churches. We, we call it a counter-trend. Like, for every trend of disengagement, there's a counter-trend of, of re-engagement, and there tends to be, you know, a real um, identification among these churches, you know, with Scripture, with worship, with missions, with you know, an outward-focused faith that's that's quite evangelistic in nature, you know, i.e. telling people about the message. And so I think, um, you know, there these kinds of churches that are emphasizing a historic understanding of the faith are thriving in many ways, but it's not simply because they're, you know, just teaching good theology. There's a, a mix of things that are taking place that I think help to contribute to the, the health and success of those kinds of congregations. And, you know, the, the, the key argument we make throughout the book is that we do need a new mind, a new way of thinking about discipleship, a new way of thinking about faith formation um, with a generation that is being influenced in new ways uh, through media and through technology and through, you know, a globalized experience. It's an unprecedented opportunity for people of faith to be thinking about how it is that we pass on our faith to a generation that is... Um, increasingly being formed, their, their faith is being formed by popular culture. We make the argument that um, religion has really become the new, um, you know, the, the pop culture has really become the new religion for this generation, and and you know they're more influenced by the celebrities that they that they uh, you, you know view than they are by uh, any kind of faith tradition. And and I think again whatever our faith background, that kind of trend ought to be troubling, and we ought to find ways of working hard to um, you know, provide some sort of antidote to that. My guest is David Kinneman. He is the um, author of You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. Uh, he's also the author of Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity and Why It Matters. He's the president and majority owner of Barna Group, and he is my guest on Religion for Life. And David, we just have about a minute left. Uh, I, I really appreciate the way you responded. You, you, you said with things that we might do in the last chapter of rethinking our relationships, rediscovering vocation, reprioritizing wisdom. I, I, uh, those are pretty basic things, aren't they, about what communities can be and do? Yeah, they are, and I think that's where there's real hope in the work that we've done, and that you know we're really trying to diagnose why are things changing so dramatically uh, with this generation. There are classic questions that every generation of human beings asks and has to answer, uh, but there's also some things that are are really changing. So as we understand those dramatic cultural and social changes, then we can apply some of the wisdom of old, that is that we're relational beings, that we need a purpose, a vocation. Uh, and that we need some sort of revelation through uh, through inspired scripture, and um, as as we begin to understand that, I think there's a real hope for the church to to do well, and and create a generation of of believers who can leave a church that's worth that's worth having, and and that's my hope uh, in this whole project, frankly. David Kinnaman has been my guest on Religion for Life. Uh, you can find more information about his work at barna.org and davidkinnaman.com. Uh, David Kinnaman, thank you for being with me on Religion for Life, and thank you for your good work. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much, John. 
You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Sheck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church in Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find more information about my congregation on the website, www.fpcelizabethton.org. You can also find out more information about this program and links to podcasts at religionforlife.me. Find Religion for Life on Facebook, Twitter, and now iTunes. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM, Emory, Virginia. Be well.